0: Our Father, we don't want any distractions this morning. We don't want anything that would shift our attention away from the focal point of our faith this morning, and that is your Son. So may your Holy Spirit now direct our attention once again to the cross of Christ. I pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is good to see you today. I hope that you're doing well. I wonder, how many of you uh, went and saw the Son of God movie that came out uh, a month or so ago? How many of you saw that? Yeah, what'd you think? Pretty good? Kind of mixed mixed reviews? Okay. How about this? How many of you have seen uh, any of the Jesus films that have come out through the years since like the 50s? You've seen at least one of those. Okay, and there's been a bunch of them. Some of them were pretty good. Others, not so much, right? (laughs) But you know, there's one thing that they all share in common, all Jesus movies. Every single movie about Jesus Christ has fallen short of conveying what actually happened when he was hanging on the cross. As one movie reviewer put it, he said, these movies can show us the crucifixion, but they can't show us the cross. And I think he was right. You see, an image on a screen is inadequate to convey spiritual truths. To fully understand what took place when Jesus died, we need words. Words of explanation. And there are no better words to help us grasp what happened on Calvary's mountain than the words found in Isaiah chapter 53. So go there uh, on your device or in your Bibles, Isaiah 53. You can pull the study guide out as well. And I want to say, if you missed last weekend here, I would strongly urge you to go online and listen or watch the sermon from last weekend. It was on the first part of this passage. And I think if you do, everything will make uh, more sense to you then, including why we chose to reconfigure our seating arrangement as it is this morning. Suffice it to say, we did that in order to focus all of our attention directly on the cross of Jesus Christ. We're starting our Holy Week observance early this year. And so, if you're looking around and it's, you're kind of dazed and confused, just look at the cross. Just stare at the cross and you'll be fine, okay? You know... The cross is the centerpiece of our Christian faith, isn't it? It really is. It's the cross that sets Christianity apart as different from every other religion in the world. Only Christianity teaches that God appeared in human flesh and died for his people. Only Christianity contends that people needed to be died for because of their sins. Christians stand alone in believing that Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh who lived a perfect life and then died in our place. And we're alone in believing that God did all the work necessary to make human beings right with God. We have simply to trust in what he did, in his work. And so these beliefs are unique to Christianity and to followers of Jesus, and they are central to our faith. You know, Isaiah chapter 53 is an amazing portion of Scripture. Really, it's the the apex, the pinnacle of Old Testament prophecy. Martin Luther declared that these words in Isaiah 53 are so precious that they ought to be written on parchment of gold and lettered in diamonds. As I said last week, Isaiah 53 is a prophetic portrait of a person. A person who's referred to as the servant of the Lord, the servant of Jehovah, the servant of of God and and the section actually begins at the end of chapter 52 in verse 13 where Isaiah starts out and says, see my servant or behold or stare at or gaze upon my servant and then he proceeds to paint a picture for us, a picture of some very important things that we should take note of and I want to reference them right now. First, Isaiah 53 is a picture of Jesus as the suffering servant of God. Jesus. For Christians, there is no doubt that the person being spoken of in this chapter is Jesus Christ. And since this was written over 700 years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene, then we refer to this as what? Prophecy, right? Prophecy. God revealing in advance something that's going to take place in the future. The main reason we believe that Isaiah's vision refers to Jesus is that the New Testament writers said so. And they said so often, over and over again. In fact, maybe you didn't know that Isaiah 53 is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. There are references to it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. No other Old Testament scripture is so often and so convincingly applied to Jesus Christ by the New Testament writers. In fact, nearly every verse in Isaiah 53 is quoted in the New Testament. Maybe the most famous of those, you'd probably be familiar with this, is found in Acts chapter 8. And that's where we find the account of a man named Philip having a conversation with a treasury official from Ethiopia, a God-fearing man, who was in his chariot traveling back home after being in Jerusalem at a feast there. This man was a believer in God, but not yet in Jesus Christ. Here's the story, Acts 8, verse 28. On his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Now, he didn't have a Kindle or an iPad. It was most likely a scroll. And there he is reading Isaiah. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet, so apparently he was reading out loud. "'Do you understand what you're reading?' Philip asked. "'How can I?' he said, "'unless someone explains it to me.' So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch, or the official, was reading this passage of Scripture. Quote, "'He was led like a, a sheep to the slaughter, "'and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, "'so he did not open his mouth. "'In his humiliation he was deprived of justice.' Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth, end quote. You know where that's from? Isaiah 53. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or somebody else? Verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Time after time, the New Testament apostles and writers declare their belief that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. No one else. So if you believe that, you're in good company. Peter, Paul, John, those guys. Isaiah 53 is a preview of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Speaking of his death, it's also a very clear picture of substitutionary atonement. Now, you're saying you're you're going all theological on us. You bet. You bet. You've got to understand substitutionary atonement, it is central to our faith. This notion that God would punish an innocent person in the place of others, that idea actually has taken some hits in recent years. The thing is, though, it's at the center of Isaiah 53. So to deny the reality or the importance of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, you basically have to take a pair of scissors and cut this chapter out of your Bible, along with all the other passages that reference Isaiah 53. Isaiah paints a vivid picture of the servant of God suffering and dying for others. That's substitutionary atonement. Very important, exceedingly important. Third, Isaiah 53 is a picture of Israel's future repentance and confession of faith. There's coming a day, did you know this, when all of Israel is going to be saved. All of Israel is going to be saved. Jewish people, as you know, through the years, by and large, have rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, but that's not always going to be the case. Listen to what Paul wrote to Gentile believers in Romans 11:25. 25. He wrote this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers so that you may not be conceited, you Gentiles, believers. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. That's us. Praise God for that. And so, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and he quotes from the Old Testament, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins one day yet in the future God will have mercy on the Jewish people he will soften their hearts and they'll turn to Jesus a national mass conversion praise God for that and on that day their confession will be the words written here in Isaiah 53 Really, that's what this passage is all about. The change of heart that the entire nation will experience when Jesus comes back and they see Jesus of Nazareth as king and their blindness is removed by God and they look back at how their people have viewed and treated Jesus through the centuries and they will say, we were wrong about him. He was our Messiah. Now we see him in his glory and now we believe. So Isaiah 53 reveals the future confession of faith or declaration of redeemed Israel. But you know what else? It's really also a picture of every saved person's repentance and confession. These words recorded in Isaiah 53 reveal the heart attitude and confession of every single true believer in Christ. It's the testimony of the saved. And I hope it's your testimony today. So we've been walking through this together. Remember, this is a song with five stanzas. And last weekend, we looked at the first two. Stanza one, the startling servant of God. Stanza two, the scorned servant of God. And so today, we'll walk through the last three together. Here's the third stanza. You could call it or title it the substitute servant of God. The substitute servant. Listen, listen. Verse four. now this is holy ground we're treading on here can you feel it can you sense it and so whatever the mental equivalent is of taking off your shoes let's do that right now this is holy ground because here isaiah lays out for us a picture of the servant of god suffering and dying in our place for us on our behalf here is revealed what the directors of the Jesus films cannot portray. Here is divine revelation telling us what was actually happening when Jesus' body was hanging on that cross, what was going on in the spiritual realm, what was going on between father and son and Satan and all of that that the films can't portray. In a word, what was happening is substitution. Substitution, 700 years before it happened, it was prophesied that the servant of the Lord would suffer and die as a substitute. The future nation of Israel will have their spiritual eyes open to that reality, that fact. They will realize that in the plan of God, Jesus was actually dying for his accusers, for his captors, and beyond that, for the sins of the whole world all of sinful humanity now look closer there are four facts revealed here about messiah's suffering and death they all start with v okay and the first one is violent his death was violent wasn't it look at the words look at the words in the text stricken smitten afflicted pierced crushed punished wounded later oppressed afflicted cut off It was a violent, vicious death. And we know from the New Testament record that that is exactly what happened to Jesus. He was so brutalized, so mutilated, so mangled through his scourging and through his execution that he barely looked human. Hanging there on that cross, nearly naked, he looked more like a raw piece of meat than a man. People turned their faces away from him. The the scene was so horrific, so gruesome, so grisly, they couldn't bear to watch. It was a vicious, violent death, but amazingly, the language here indicates something else, that he submitted to this willingly, that his death was voluntary. Violent, but, but voluntary. It says he took up our infirmities, he carried our sorrows, he poured out his life unto death. He did it willingly. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, Jesus would say. And that's exactly what he did. Though he had the authority to summon 12 legions of angels, that's 72,000 angels, to come and rescue him and whisk him away from this travesty, this outrage, he refused to do that. Somewhere in the councils of eternity past, the Son of God had volunteered for this assignment. And as the hour grew ever closer, he didn't bail out, he didn't turn away, he didn't shrink back, he didn't take flight. He endured it willingly. We should praise God for that. That's why we sing songs to him, that's why we sing songs about him. He did it voluntarily. Now, here's a key thought, though. Not only vicious and violent, not only voluntary, but his death was vicarious. It was vicarious, substitutionary. It says, for our infirmities, for our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, he died for our going astray, our turning away and going our own. You know, at the time when Jesus was here, it was generally believed that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and of stirring up insurrection against the Roman government and against Caesar. Those were thought to be his crimes that were worthy of execution and death. Even in our day, Jews believed that God was punishing Jesus. See what it says? We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. We, they're going to say, we thought God was punishing Jesus for blasphemy. But the truth is that he'd committed no crimes. Claiming to be God is only blasphemy if you're not God. If you are God and you claim to be God, what's that? That's called telling the truth, right? And Jesus didn't stir up insurrection against Rome, wasn't it Jesus who said, pay your taxes, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's? These were trumped up charges against him. They were false charges. But Isaiah declares, and the future nation of Israel will too, that Jesus was indeed being executed for sins, just not his own. He died for the sins of others. His was a vicarious death. So whose sins was he being punished for? How many times does it say it? Ours, 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 ours. In that moment, On the cross, somehow, incomprehensible to us, God was scooping up and taking all the sins of humanity and laying them on his own son, right? He laid on him the iniquity of us all and then he punished his own son in our place. Jesus literally became sin for us. My breaking of God's Ten Commandments Your breaking of God's Ten Commandments, our pride, our rebellion, our idolatry, our selfishness, our lust, our immorality, our greed, our selfish anger, our lack of love for God and our lack of love for fellow man, our lack of love for our neighbor, all of these sins laid on Jesus. And in that moment... Jesus, as Martin Luther said, became the most wretched, filthy, despicable sinner in the history of the world. Covered in sins, but not his own. He was wearing our sins. Again, Martin Luther said, we all walk around with his nails in our pockets. Right? It was our sins that put him there. It's difficult to fathom this substitutionary atonement. His suffering was violent, it was voluntary, it was vicarious, but thank God, Jesus' death, number four, was victorious. It was victorious. It didn't look victorious. (laughs) It looked shameful and humiliating at the time, but it was truly victorious. Isaiah tells us that in God's plan, the death of God's servant son would have glorious effects. Jesus himself said in John 12 that if the seed... That's capital S. If the seed falls to the ground and dies, it will produce many seeds. It will bear much fruit. And so it did. It says here, Christ's sacrifice brought us peace. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. You know what the Hebrew word is? Shalom. Shalom, peace. The the well-being. The tranquility of spirit of the people of God. It brought us peace. It brought us healing by his stripes. We are healed for sin-sick souls, healing of our souls and ultimately of our bodies. His death would produce spiritual offspring, verse 10. It would enable him to justify many, verse 11, declaring many people righteous before God. And So whenever anybody believes the gospel, these blessings and a hundred others are graciously given to them, all because of the victorious substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. Now, there's an important word picture given here in verse 6 where human beings are likened to an animal. And what is that animal? Sheep. (laughs) How would you describe sheep? Dumb? (laughs) Somebody said dumb? Stupid? All we like sheep, it says, have gone astray. And you know, that's what sheep do. They don't herd and corral as easily as other animals. They have a tendency to wander off, do their own thing. That's our collective story as human beings, is it not? We go our own way. Sheep are prone to wander away from the flock and stray far from their shepherd. Humans want to go their own way, do their own thing. This is sinful. But then there's an irony here as we move into stanza four. We could title stanza 4, The the Silent Servant of God. Now, see if you find the irony here. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Do you see the irony? We humans are like sheep, wandering, going astray, but the servant of the Lord would also be like a sheep, a lamb, but in a different way than us, right? You say, well, how is he like a lamb? Well, three ways. First, he was silent like a lamb. Jesus was silent in the face of oppression. It says he did not open his mouth. It says it again, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. John MacArthur writes this, that's not normal for innocent people who are being tortured and abused. Normally, an oppressed person who is innocent and knows that he's going through a gross injustice cries out about that injustice, but not the servant of Jehovah. He doesn't say a word. When he was brought before the high priest in Matthew 26, it tells us that he was silent. In the next chapter, he was taken before the chief priests and the scribes. And again, he was silent. In Mark 15, he was taken before Pilate, and he was silent. In Luke 23, he was taken before King Herod, and again he was silent. He was silent before the high priest, the Sanhedrin, before Pilate. He never said a word in defense of himself. There were plenty of things he could have said to them, but he didn't. He was silent. It was the silence of submission to the will of his Father. Silent, like a lamb, but something else, he was slaughtered like a lamb. Jesus would be the slaughtered lamb. And you know, the New Testament attests to this over and over again, right? Under the old covenant, the Jews had been required, as you know, to bring animal sacrifices, day after day, week after week, month after month, as a picture of future atonement for sin that would be provided by a, a substitute. But did you know? that the blood of all of those sacrificed sheep and rams and goats could not atone for human sin? That's what Hebrews 10 says. Could not atone for human sin. You say, well, what was that all about then? (laughs) It was a daily object lesson so that every one of God's people, the Jews, would understand that sin must be atoned for with the shedding of innocent blood. Every little Jewish boy, every little Jewish girl, day after day, seeing this slaughter, this ongoing slaughter and bloodshed every day, got it, or at least was intended to get it. Oh my, sin must be serious to a holy God. It must be atoned for by the shedding of innocent blood. It was all meant to point to a spotless lamb who would come one day and shed his innocent blood blood which would truly atone for and cover the sins of the people. John the Baptist got this, right? Jesus walking along one day and he says, behold the king, he could have said king, Messiah, he could have said that. What did he say? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember this, those lambs that were being prepared for sacrifice were to be without blemish the best of the flock, and Jesus, the Lamb of God, would fulfill that requirement too, the only one who could. He would be absolutely spotless like a sacrificial lamb. Listen to verse 8 of Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus had no sin of his own. You see, if I died on the cross for you, that wouldn't pay for your sins. I've got my own sins. It took a sinless, spotless lamb to be able to take on the sins of other people. And Jesus was sinless and spotless. And that became very clear as his trial progressed through the night. His accusers struggled to make anything stick. Finally, an exasperated pilot appealed to the bloodthirsty crowd in the morning, and he declared this, I find no fault in him. Never has a truer statement ever been spoken. Sinless. Sinless in his life, in his ministry. Listen, there was a time where Jesus one day had a group of people scattered around him and he said, who of you can convict me of any sin? Now, don't you try that. Because there will be a response. I mean, your spouse, your kids, you know. When he said it, silence. In his ministry, in his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion, not once was there a single sinful response, not one selfish inclination, not one violent outburst, not one deceptive word. Through it all, Jesus, your Savior and mine, was pure as the driven snow, spotless. There's only been one, right? There's only been one. Maybe as I read, you notice that there are some pretty specific details of his burial, Here in Isaiah 53, again, 700 years before it happened, says he was assigned a grave with the wicked. See that? What does that mean? Well, it means, it points to the fact that Jesus was executed alongside wicked criminals, one on his right and one on his left. The cultural tradition of that day was to allow the crucified bodies of wicked criminals like that to just hang there sometimes for days as their corpses started to rot, the birds would come and begin to pluck at the flesh and pull the body apart. After many days, they would take and throw the remains of the rotting carcasses into the dump, which was a burning trash heap just outside the walls of Jerusalem called Gehenna. Now, one little letter makes a big difference. You know, Gehenna, as I understand it, actually comes from an Indian phrase, meaning three in one, where three creeks come together in in one. So Gehenna is a picture of the Holy Trinity. (laughs) Gehenna was the burning, rotting, smelling trash heap outside of Jerusalem where these dead bodies were thrown in and burned, okay? One little letter makes a big, big difference. When those men, when their corpses were tossed into that, burning trash heap there was no funeral service there was no proper burial it was like one final act of humiliation but you know what god the father was not going to let that happen to his son psalm 16 he says he would not let his holy one see corruption he was not going to allow the precious body of his son to be thrown into the dump And so there's a twist here. It says he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death. Crucified alongside wicked men, yes, but with a rich man in his death. And you know the New Testament tells us of a wealthy man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who went to Pilate after the crucifixion and asked for Jesus' body, that he might lay it in his own tomb, which he had prepared for his own death one day, actually a cave hollowed out of a a cliff, the side of a cliff, and he said, can I have the body of Jesus? I'll put him in my tomb with the rich in his death. So God prevented Jesus from ending up in the dump, thank God, and I think this was a sign that his humiliation was just about over and his exaltation was beginning, and that's what stanza five is about. You could title it the sovereign servant of God. Here in the final stanza of this song, we're given a glimpse of the whole thing from God's point of view. Let me read it for you, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We see here in verse 10, the sovereign plan to turn sinners into his very own offspring, his sons and daughters. Now it says it was the Lord's will to crush him. Do you see that? And cause him to suffer? You know what that means? That means that God did it. God did that. And that's where you say, wait a second, I thought bad men did that. And certainly the... Jews and the Romans together pushed for Jesus' arrest and trial and conviction and execution. But you need to know that they were acting under the sovereign decree of Almighty God the Father. Here's how Peter would put it in his sermon on the day of Pentecost from Acts 2. Men of Israel, he's talking to the very people who had called out for Jesus' crucifixion. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you. With miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The Bible always holds men responsible for the death of Jesus, but also maintains that God was fulfilling his own purposes through evil men for our salvation you say I cannot wrap my mind around that well welcome to the club <laughs> this is a mind shift of epic proportions things that seem incongruous to our little human minds all true in the mind of God and so men did crush Jesus yes and God was crushing Jesus Men were doing their worst to the sinless one and simultaneously God was doing his best for sinners at the same time. Now you've noted here what it says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. This is why some people in our day have said this is a case of divine child abuse. You say, what, what, what was it that made God happy about crushing his son? Listen to me carefully God's pleasure was not in his son's pain, but in his purpose. Not in his agony, but in his achievement. It was the outcome that pleased God, not the suffering itself. And what was the outcome? Though he makes his life a guilt offering, it says he will see his offspring. In other words, through this event where God laid on His Son the sins of all of us. He was removing our shame. He was removing our guilt and our sin so that He could turn guilty sinners into sons and daughters in His family, and that makes God happy. (laughs) That makes God happy. Have you ever thought about that? Doesn't it say in the New Testament when one sinner repents, there is great joy in the presence of the angels. Not the angels. Who's in the presence of the angels? God. God is happy, joyful, pleased whenever any sinner bows their knee to Jesus Christ, believes the gospel, trusts in him, and God says, yes, my son's death fulfilling what it was intended to fulfill. And he takes great pleasure in that. He's always wanted a family. You know that, right? God has always wanted a forever family. That's one of the main storylines of the whole Bible. God doing everything necessary to bring guilty sinners like me and you into his family. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, the sons and daughters of God through the substitutionary atoning death of his Son. That's the only way it could happen. That's the only way sinners could be made holy enough to dwell with God in his family forever. See, this is the gospel. That's why Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel. It's really the first gospel in sequence, right? Isaiah, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's beautiful. All according to God's sovereign plan. There's also a hint here of another sovereign act of God and that's the resurrection. The sovereignly planned resurrection. It's more implied, I'll grant this, than stated outright, but it's there. Do you see Easter in here anywhere? Listen to these phrases. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will see the light of life. He will justify many. You know what? None of those things can happen if you're dead. If the servant of the Lord dies, never to live again, there will be no offspring to speak of, no prospering, no seeing the light of life, no justifying of many sinners before God. So, yes, there's a resurrection in view here, a rising from the grave, a hint of Easter. And we're going to celebrate that in two weeks, aren't we? There's also a sovereign satisfaction, verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Who is being satisfied here by the death of Christ? Who? Well, again, it's the father, right? And and what he's saying is this. The father looked on the sacrifice of his own son, and he said, it's enough. It's sufficient to cover and pay for the sins of billions of people over thousands of years. That's enough. And how do we know the father believed it was enough? Well, he raised his son from the dead. That was his stamp of satisfaction. Enough. Praise God for Easter. It's coming. You know what? This glorious song finishes with a declaration by God that he will reward his servant for his faithfulness. It concludes with a sovereign exaltation. Verse 12. It's kind of where it started out. Therefore, this is the Father speaking, I that's the Father, I will give him the Son, a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So this wonderful song ends with a victory Parade as the Lord God himself establishes his servant son on his throne and rewards him with all the spoils of victory. It's the image of a conquering king, a hero who has overpowered all of the hostile forces, he's embarrassed all the puny little kings who were set in array against him, and he now divides up the loot. <laughs> and God declares two things about him. I'm going to allot him a portion with the greats, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Now that's kind of strange. I think we would expect God to say, I'm gonna give my servant everything, and he will. But the focus here is on sharing, sharing the spoils of victory with two groups of people, the great and the strong, you see that? Now who's that? That's us. (laughs) That's us. The great and the strong get to share in the spoils of Christ's victory for us. You say, well, I don't, how did we get to be great and strong? You know, we're kind of puny and weak and insignificant. Well, how did this happen? God did it. In justifying us, He has made the weak strong, right? He has made the insignificant great. And Jesus is going to divide the spoils with his people now, see when you're in heaven you're not going to be sitting in heaven over here looking over there at Jesus and, and saying wow Jesus sure looks like he's having a great time enjoying all of that stuff that's not what it's gonna be like he's gracious he's gonna share all of his possessions with his people you ever think about that you know you may ha- be having a hard go of it here in this life that can happen right but I want to remind you that if you are in Christ, if you've believed his gospel, when it comes to eternity, you're going to be filthy rich in Christ. It's promised to you right here. Have you ever heard this statement? All true believers are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. You ever heard that? That's in the Bible. That's Romans eight seventeen. That is awesome. Everything he possesses, we will possess. He's going to share his victory spoils with all of his people, the great and the strong. Praise God for that. We're going to reign with him on the earth in the millennial kingdom. We will reign in the eternal kingdom forever with Christ. You know what? Salvation is better than you thought. You thought, well, I just thought salvation was having my sins forgiven. Well, it is that, but it's 10,000 times that. It's really good news. Well, what an amazing song. What an amazing chapter. What an amazing promise. No wonder Charles Wesley was nearly beside himself when he wrote the words to this beloved hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love. There's a lot of love there, as I said last week. There's a lot of love there. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. A God who comes, takes on flesh, and sacrifices himself for his people. That's amazing love, isn't it? That's amazing love. Well, this chapter began with a question Isaiah posed to his readers Who has believed our message? Verse 1. Who's believed our message? Answer. I have, I have, and I know many, many of you have as well. We're gonna partake partake of the Lord's table again this week, and it's gonna be a little different today. I've asked uh, pastors and elders to come and serve God's people, communion today. And I wanna do it a little differently though, because even as one day Israel will make a confession of their faith in Christ, I'm going to ask this of you this morning. When you come, so there will be a pastor. They'll, they'll be all around this table, and they'll have a tray here. And so when you come, what I'm going to ask you to do is, when, you, when you're face-to-face with, with the pastor, I want you to make your confession of faith, okay? Your confession of faith. Yes, pastor, I've been believing that gospel message since 1974. 1986, 1997, 2001, 2012, 10 minutes ago, when I got it. (laughs) I believe that will bring great joy to our pastors to hear your confession of faith this morning as you come up. I think it will honor Christ who gave himself for us and said, confess with your lips, right? Pastor, I've been believing the gospel message since, whenever that was. You can, it'll get kind of crowded up here, but if you want to take your elements and then kind of linger around, you can, or you can take them back to your seat. Let's honor the Lord at his table this morning. So Father God, as we come now to the table, I pray that Jesus Christ would be honored through the confession of our lips, as well as the words of our songs in just a few moments. You love your people so much, Lord. You've poured out yourself for them. May we pour out ourselves for you. We thank you for the body that was given for us, crushed for us, for our salvation. We praise you for the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We honor you now, Jesus. Hear the confessions of your people, confessions of faith, I pray in Christ's name.